Steve Jobs has that famous quote of focus is more about what you say no to. And so he said no to almost everything. And that's really what gave him focus. And so I'm going into next year and really the end of this year. And we're trimming a lot of stuff that we do right now so that we can focus on fewer things and make them better. And that to me is really hard because I have a vision for what less but better is going to be like for our community and our ecosystem, but it's probably hard for customers to see that vision and go, oh yeah, you're taking away things. This is, how is this better for me, right? This is Show Your Business Who's Boss. Listen in on behind the scenes, unfiltered conversations with my favorite business owner friends who take charge and make their businesses work for them. Don't just be your own boss, show your business who's boss. I'm Pia Silva. Recently, I've been thinking and talking a lot about focus, focusing where you spend your time and how you spend it and how, just like your closet, your business needs to be periodically decluttered. So today, I'm excited to have someone who just wrote a book about focusing. He's the author of Get Rich in the Deep End and a seriously badass business owner, Brent Weaver. Many of you probably know Brent because he's a big name in the branding agency world. He's the founder and CEO of YouGurus, a business training and education company, and they are on a mission to help 10,000 digital agency owners achieve freedom in business and life by helping them own their market. There's that focus part again. He's had a long and successful career building and then constantly reinventing his businesses over the last 20 years, and I'm excited for him to share what he's learned. So buckle up. Here we go. Brent, great to see you. How's it going? It's good. It's good. How have you been? I've been good. I've been doing some interesting, different things, trying different things. And actually, that's kind of on the topic that I want to talk to you about today. So just so you know, this is very casual vibe to this podcast. (laughs) Uh, We're just going to chat. I want to talk to you more about your business than about what you teach people how to do. But I guess there are a lot of one in the same. And I was thinking about, you know, what, what I want to hear from you. And it happens to be on topic for what I'm thinking about a lot today and these days, which is focus. And focus seems to be a real strength of yours, considering you just wrote a book about it. <laughs> um, oh. We're going yeah. to pull back the curtain and, uh, yeah, and you can yeah. see how not focused I probably feel, but maybe from the outside, it looks like I'm focused. So that's that's, well, that's what can, matters, right? You can tell us both what you do and what you think we should do. <laughs> I'll, I'll let you say both. How about that? That's good. Okay, cool. I definitely want to talk about your book, which I loved. And I want to dive into some of the, actually some of the strategies you used in the book. But I also just want to start by going back a little bit. I've known you for a few years. You've got a beautiful business and I don't really know the backstory of your business and where it all started. So can you give us a little, take us back? Mm, Let's see. So I was, um, (laughs) I was born in a manger. No, there was, I was actually on my, my honeymoon and it was the first time I had taken more than probably a few days off from my business since I had started it. And 
I was kind of, I mean, unplugged from the business. Like we were in St. Lucia. And so it was, it was uh, two full weeks and it took a few days to detox from work. Now I would do like a little bit. My wife says I had to kind of relieve the work pressure valve. Like I had to go and like check email, at least make sure there was no emergencies. And if I didn't mm-hmm. do that, I would kind of devolve into some kind of panic attack. Uh, so, so we learned that on an early trip when we were together, that it was better for me just to kind of like have a scheduled 30 minutes to go like do that. But outside of that, right. I was totally unplugged. We were scuba Wait, diving. We we're having so a ha- great time. How long ago was this and what was the business? Hmm. Yeah. So it was 2012. At the time I was running my agency, had been running my agency for for over a decade. We had created some training programs for a really kind of sub-niche in the web pro space called Business Catalyst. And it was it was really taking off. We had a really great relationship with Adobe. They were paying us a bunch of money to create some really cool resources. And then we had a kind of a big member site within this niche. And then we had our agency. So it kind of felt like we were running at this point wow. to two different businesses. We had the agency business and then we would like take about a day a week and we'd create training for other agencies. And wow, you were really ahead of the curve with that. 2012. (laughs) You know, I think what happened was we had gone through and I don't know if you guys know, if you know who Jeff Walker is product launch formula. Yeah, sure. So we I had gone through that course. And I remember my business partner bought that course for $2,000. And I was like, you're insane. You just spent $2,000 on a bunch of videos, right? And um, and we had the course for 10 months. And, you know, we both had gone through it. And it was just this like 10-month process of like, how could we do something like this, right? And so we built up an email list. We had 500 people on our email list, which doesn't sound very like a lot, right? I mean, these days, it's like 500 people, like, you know. And we followed his framework, and we did a launch to our list um, of 500 people, and we sold a $99 a month membership to learn about how to sell and run a, a web agency. And I had, this is gonna sound crazy, we had four videos. Uh-huh. That was it, right? Okay. So you you paid $100 and you got access, and we said, hey, there's gonna be more, more to come, right? So we launched this thing with four videos, about 10 minutes long each. And, and that was it. That was our first information product. And we had 100 people sign up for $100 a month. And we were like, oh, this is interesting. We forgot to have any of them on actual recurring membership, which I've heard is important when you sell something for $100 uh, a month was to actually have them you know, <laughs> charge, charge them. on month two, right? So it was like around day 34, we were like, where's the 10 grand, right? <laughs> and uh we had to go back to all the customers and say, hey, we need you to sign up again. And we lost, you know, half of them did not for whatever reason. That was probably 2010. So on my honeymoon, you know, I had this kind of break from work and I just did a lot of soul searching. At that time, we were probably, the training business was doing about $30,000 a month and the agency was doing about $90,000 a month. And I was looking at like, what, where did I get my happiness and joy from? And where was I feeling fulfilled and energized? And where was I maybe not feeling as fulfilled and energized. And um, somewhere around day 10 of the honeymoon, I think I kind of like got out of bed at 11. My wife was asleep and I was like, I've got an idea. And I like went into the bathroom where the, you know, she couldn't, it wasn't going to keep her up at night for the light. And I I literally like sketched out from like 11 o'clock at night until about five in the morning. I like sketched out this whole business plan for, for you gurus. And my wife wakes up at like 6.30 and she's like, 
have you been awake all night? <laughs> like, yes, but I've, you know, I figured it out. I know what I'm going to do with the next, you know, decade of my life. And so came back from that trip, uh, sold my business within three months and got some investment together and started you gurus November of 2012. Okay. Hold on a second though. You, you started your story at a moment when you were running a $10 million a year agency. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so no, we were doing about 90k a, a month so we were yeah not 10 oh, million but oh, oh, yeah, uh, we were we were sorry a million how long had you been running your agency to get there so my partner and i started the business in 1999 we were seniors in high school and it was wow. a part-time kind of hobby business until 2005 so technically we started in 1999 but I think really 2005 was our first kind of full-time year where we were out of school, we were working on the business, we were focused on it and, you know, making all of the mistakes that uh, you can possibly imagine making yeah. for the first few years. So you build this, this million dollar agency up, you fall into Jeff Walker's <laughs> teaching information products at the, at the birth of it. I mean, obviously information products have been around for decades, but the Jeff Walker thing that was like pretty new at that point. So you're really on the on the beginning. Yeah, it was it was early in terms of I would say that becoming mainstream. My partner at the time was, uh, you know, he's very into like a lot of the you know internet marketer type stuff. Like I wasn't mm -hmm. really as heavy into that stuff. But but yeah, it was it was early days, and we sat on it for almost a year before we really knew what to do with it. Did a first launch, you know, and, and that changed a lot for us. Okay, so then you're. In St. Lucia. Yep. And you decide you're going to start you gurus in 2012. Yep. Okay. So tell the audience for those that don't know, what is you gurus? Yeah. So we are a, a business training and coaching program for digital agency owners. We primarily support agencies that are around that like hundred K a year up to a uh, million dollars a year. So we really are, you know, we provide training, education and coaching and support for that trajectory. I have a couple of private clients that are over a million dollar a year businesses, but we don't run any kind of group or training program really focused on those types of clients. So if you're a you know, small web designer, branding agency content person, and you're in the early stages, you have a successful like solo practice, but are looking at maybe growing it into a multi-person agency, then we can kind of help provide frameworks for that growth. Basically the stuff that I wish that I would have had when we started our business, you know, around like how to market yourself and how to sell and how to deliver for your clients, all that kind of stuff. I mean, none of that, there was no support whatsoever back in 2005, 2006. And I think that caused us to make a lot of mistakes that were preventable for sure. Sure. And you've really made a name for yourself in this space. I mean, you're really the go-to for agency owners who want to grow an agency. I, I think of you as that too. How to scale your agency, building out your team is a big piece of it. Is that right? Yeah. I, I mean, I appreciate that. Um, <laughs> yeah. We've, uh, you know, I think we've, we've been focused on this market for a, a while. So we have that uh, kind of advantage. I was talking to my team about this uh, the other day. I was like, we have eight years of, I mean, really 10 years of history in this market. And there's, we've gotten so many people, these amazing results and had such a great impact. And I think I feel really privileged for that. But on, on the, uh, you know, every strength also has a weakness, right? We have like 
10 years of, of, you know, baggage, right? We have a lot of history that, you know, things that we've done that have been really successful and also things that we've tried that haven't been successful, right? We have kind of, we're, we're continuously learning and trying to innovate in this market. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of great things. And there's also, we've had a lot of challenges over 10 years. I think like any business, right? I think it's, Isn't it's that just definitely been interesting. Part of the journey. What do you mean baggage? <laughs> Why are you calling it baggage? Um, you can't just well, go you, ascend without right. without failure, right? Well, I think so. So take for instance, you know, if you were a business getting into this space brand new today, then you know you can kind of invent without any preconceived notions about your expectations from past clients or or you know reputation, whether it's good or bad, right? Like a reputation for like let's say for instance, you know, we've had a long history of helping kind of web agency focused people in our market, because that was kind of where I came from. And so a lot of our early programs were around that. And so we still have, you know, sales calls today, where even though we've been focused on really a more holistic digital agency market for three years, you know, we still have a lot of sales calls today where they're like, oh, well, you just help web agencies sell $10,000 projects. And we're kind of like, well, <laughs> yes, but you know, you know, so it's like, that's what I mean by that, right? You have, you know, regardless of, and, and you're a branding expert, like top of your game, like you understand that so well about like, we can decide like, oh, we're serving a different part of the market years ago. And we can work on that over, you know, day after day after day. But if there's a perception out there in the marketplace that you're something different, it doesn't really matter like what you think of yourself, you still have that perception. And so I think that's, that's a challenge. And I think that, you know, you have to just be willing to continue to reinvent yourself and, and be okay with that. And I think a lot of agency owners too, probably have this with legacy clients. Like I hear that term a lot, like oh, I have legacy clients on legacy pricing, right? That's an example of baggage. And we can say like, from a consultant's perspective, you should raise your prices and just like change that. But there's also that, you know, there's a lot of history there with people and emotion and like there's stuff wrapped up in that. So when I, when I say baggage, I'm talking about that stuff, right? Yeah. Where it's like you have expectations or old ways of doing things that you've tried to change, but sometimes it's it's hard. Yeah, that has been a topic of conversation on this podcast, actually, for the last couple of weeks. I've been talking to different people about the idea that you ha it's very hard to get rid of things that maybe are not serving you because they're not necessarily, it's not obvious that they're hindering your growth because they have positive, like the um, training you're talking about with the website, that existing is maybe sending a message. Do you get rid of it? But it's good stuff. How how far are you willing to go to focus and clean house with the stuff that's not serving you? Thinking about focus and thinking about how to move into the next stage of you gurus, what are you guys talking about? Would you be willing to let go of certain things in order to build your brand on this more holistic perception that you want to create? It's actually, so I did an internal state of the union with our team on Thursday of last week. And our theme for 2021 is less but better. And that is a, you know, I think it's it's very fitting that you're talking about focus today because that's what we're, you know, we're looking at next year. Like we do have a lot of products and courses and programs and, and presentations and even looking at our program and seeing all of the different touch points that we've created, like we've done a really good job at meeting customer need and adding stuff 
to serve, you know, that thing and adding stuff to serve this thing and adding this, you know, over here. And I think you do that over an eight year period of time, you add a lot and maybe it's harder as a business owner to subtract and go in and go, let's get rid of some old stuff. And so hard. Really, <laughs> yeah, it, it's it, and you know, that word focus, I mean, it really is. And you, we hear this and it's so cliche, right? It focuses about more about what we say no to than what we say yes to. Like we think focus means going, oh, I'm just going to do this, right? And really focus, you know, you hear from, you know, Steve Jobs has that famous quote of, you know, focus about is more about what you say no to. And so, you know, he said no to almost everything. And that's really what gave him focus. And so I'm going into next year and really the end of this year, and we're trimming a lot of stuff that we do right now so that we can focus on fewer things and make them better. And that to me is really hard because I have a vision for what less but better is going to be like for our community and our ecosystem, but it's probably hard for customers to see that vision and go, oh yeah, you're taking away things. This is, how is this better for me, right? I think back to like Netflix when they took away the DVD, the mail order, right? I mean, there were people that were like, they just loved getting those DVDs in the mail, right? And you know, Netflix is like, look, we're just, that's not where we're going. And I'm sure there are people that still would love to have DVD subscriptions, but you know, they saw a vision that was different. And it probably took another year or two before everybody else kind of caught up to where they were. And I think that's the hard part about, I mean, look, I'm in this right now. The hard part about making those decisions is you're going to say, hey, last but better. Sounds great on paper. We're going to say no to a bunch of stuff. And, you, you know, we're probably going to have people that are like, hey, I really liked those DVD subscriptions, right? Yes, people love to hold on to the past because they don't like change. <laughs> so that also makes it difficult. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what you are going to hold on to and focus on? I mean, our core, I guess our core promise, um, we've got kind of two main focuses right now. We've got one one program. It's our, our U Academy case study program. We're helping people get to kind of 10K a month with their agency. And that's been really popular in the last few months. And then our core 12-month program, that's really a three-year kind of vision with people around helping them to own their market and scale up their agency within, within a niche. That promise, we are holding on to both of those as our core program promises, but it's really in, in the weeds a little bit. It's probably more stuff that I think about than our customers necessarily, but in terms of how we're delivering that program, right now we have a lot of touch points with our customers. There's a lot of moving parts, and I think a lot of it was created to solve really specific issues, but we've gotten to the point now where we really want to do fewer fewer touch points, but make them a lot more meaningful and a lot more getting people even better results and faster results. Like that's kind of what we're looking at is how can we do, how can we get somebody the same result, but do it in half the time? And it might sound kind of crazy, but let's say you're watching a training that's 90 minutes and it's great training. It's amazing, right? But could we do it in 45? Mm-hmm. Could we do it in 30? Could we do it in 20 minutes, right? And and those are hard questions to really ask. Uh, Mark Twain, I think, has a quote that was like, you know, if I would have had more time, I would have, would have written, written a shorter, shorter letter. letter. Yes, I love that quote. Yeah. One of my favorite quotes. And, and so that's kind of the ethos we want to have going into next year is like, how can we take these things that we've built that are amazing and great, but how can we do it in less time, fewer touch points, and make that more impactful and meaningful for our clients? Because our clients are out there trying to run their businesses and they are really busy. And so we want to figure out how to how to bridge that gap. 
Yeah, simplicity is hard. And listening to you talk about this, there is a, a clear parallel between that and what I recommend. And I assume you kind of similarly, I know you are because I read your book, that people should do in their brand too. Less is more. <laughs> Clarity. It takes, I usually am using the word restraint with a lot of my clients. You need to have restraint. I mm. know that there are lots of things that you have to offer, but if you try to offer all of them, your clients will get confused. They won't know what you're selling. They won't, it will not be helpful to them and they ultimately won't get the value that you want them to get. So you have to have restraint and just put your best foot forward and that's it. And that will actually be more helpful for both of you. But it's very hard when you're in the middle of it. That's why I'm sure you experience this. Lots of branding people say, oh, I'm so good at this for other people. I just can't do it for myself. It's like, yeah, because you're too close. You're too close to all this stuff. I have the same experience. I have so many things that I don't want to let go of, but I know that clarity is going to be most effective. There was a post on my Facebook feed, which this is just such a perfect one. It was like somebody was talking about getting rid of old T-shirts and they had, you know, their dresser was just overflowing with T-shirts from conferences, from signing up for some software company and getting a T-shirt in the mail. And I, I had the same situation. It was like years and years ago, I had like all these T-shirts. I could wear a different T-shirt every day of the year and still probably not come across the same T-shirt twice, right? Which of course makes it to where when you move, <laughs> it's like really annoying. And then like the T-shirts that are like really far down the stack, like they get kind of like wrinkled and, and whatever. And, and you get you get baggage and then throwing those T-shirts away is like this emotional experience. And I can see it in this Facebook post. This person was like, I just can't bring myself to, you know, throw away these T-shirts. And people were like, oh, make a quilt out of them and all this kind of stuff. And it was like, it was just interesting to see like how difficult it is to just, you know, when you have that emotional connection, there was an experience, there was an event, there was a run, there was a signing up for a SaaS product or whatever, right? Uh, and it just creates Always this emotional thing. <laughs> yeah. So if it's, if it's hard to throw away t-shirts, throwing away stuff that you've invested like hundreds of hours or thousands of hours into and saying, hey, we're going to try something different. I mean, obviously orders of magnitude more difficult. Yes. Every time I've done it though, and every time I've pulled the plug on something, ultimately it is very cathartic and makes life feel a little bit lighter for a little while. I think the first time we hyper-focused and let go of everything else, and to your point, it was about saying no to more things than we said yes to. And we said, okay, we're going to get rid of all of our clients, basically. We're not going to say yes to any of these people who are asking us, hey, can you design a logo? Hey, can you design a website? No, no, no just one to three person service businesses, as tough as it was to say no, especially when you want money, it made everything so clear and easy and light because it was just a yes, no, you're either perfect or you're not. There was no gray area. And that gray area is such a waste of time and energy in my experience. So that first step was very challenging. But afterwards, I, I found it to be very light and airy. I don't know what your experience has been. <laughs> I'd say about every year or two, we kind of go through this reinvention. Actually, I did a my keynote last year at our, our annual conference was, was all about reinvention. And I was saying that because I actually bought out my business partner last year. And it was, we had been partners for 20 years. And that was, you know, we, we kind of both were looking at how do we 
we weren't 100% in it in, in terms of our relationship anymore. And he wanted to go do other stuff. And so I had to kind of reinvent myself last year. Now, I had no idea, obviously, that we were going into this like crazy 2020 thing, right? Oh my and goodness. I was going to be forced right into this reinvention, maybe not as uh, voluntarily. And so I think that for me, that's as I'm looking at this going, okay, like if I could wave a magic wand like a year from today, you know, how do I want things to look, you know, not like next month or next quarter, but a year from today, what kind of business do I want to be running three years from today? What kind of business do I want to be running? You know, what do I want my week to look like? And looking at that vision compared to where I am today, like there's no way around it. And if, you know, you make changes in your business and you have some short-term headwinds, I mean, you can always make it right. That's at least my opinion is you could you know, kind of make some radical shifts. And if people don't, you know, there's probably a point if you make those decisions and it turns out it's not the right decision, right? You could kind of go, hey, let's kind of meet in the middle and figure it out. But, you know, I try to keep my eye on that mindset in 12 months, right? I'm going to go through some pain, some difficulty right now. But as we start to build back up, let's say we have the same amount of clients as we do now a year from today, but we have 80% less touch points. And those touch points are extraordinary and they're amazing and they're wonderful, but there's fewer of them and we're putting more time into those ideas. Will I be better off or worse off? And so I try to think about that when making these decisions, because if you think about like, you know, what's everybody going to say when we roll out this news, right? I mean, within minutes, you're going to convince yourself that this is a bad idea. You're going to get that first negative feedback and you're Mm going to get cold feet and you're going to be like, I can't do it. Right. And so I think I always have to just think about, okay, a year from now. How do I want this to be? Yeah. And just remember how you birthed this whole thing in the bathroom of a hotel in St. Lucia (laughs) by yourself in your own mind. So we have to follow Brent's ideas, not what everybody else thinks that they want. We don't know what we want, right? You got to tell us. (laughs) And I think too, like being confident in your abilities. If you were able to build a business that was successful, like in your case, you know, serving a lot of different clients and you were able to build that into a successful business, like I think I would be confident or try to be confident in myself that if you have a new focus, like we're going to focus on one to three person service businesses, like why wouldn't we be able to build a successful business off of that focus? Because we were able to build a successful business off of a really generalist focus. So, you know, we can probably do it again. And And I bet you probably built that the business off of that focus probably faster much faster than you did that first time right partly because you probably were focused but also because this was your second or third or fourth or fifth go at you know building up a customer base and so i think we get better at that over time which is something that shouldn't be discounted when we're thinking about this you've been in business for a long time and you've had a lot of iterations did you ever think that you were just going to get like finally get your business to a place where that was the business and you could just relax. Did you ever think that? Or did you always know you were going to constantly be reinventing? Because I thought that for a long time. <laughs> like if we, and I, I think it was actually it, it, my wife, Emily, she, she said to me, it was maybe shortly after we were married. And I started explaining to her that like, I was going to just, you know, do this one more push. And it was going to like work, you know, nights and weekends and really like go for it. And then we'd be like, good. And she was like, no, you're not. And I was like, what do you mean? She's like, well, because this happens like every three to nine months, right? Like you're having to like reinvent and change things. Like you're like, of course, you're going to do this again. 
right? She's like, just stop saying that you're not going to do it. Just be like, hey, this is what the business needs right now is, you know, a really big push. And let's make sure to find some time to take some vacations or some time off in between, right? Um, you know, that there's never going to be this kind of like perfect business. You're going to constantly have to come back to this. That's just like the nature of, of entrepreneurship. And so I think it was that outside perspective of like, I had convinced myself that there was just going to be this one day we were going to arrive. And, you know, I think she kind of said, look, she reflected that, you know, you're on this journey, like you should start enjoying the journey that you're on instead of thinking that one day you're going to have the perfect business because I've, you know, she's like, I've known you for a long time at that point. And I chose this relationship and I chose it. No, you know, even though you keep telling me like, we're, you know, I, I, I did not choose a relationship because I thought we were going to arrive at some perfect destination. Like I have fun along the way. So you should start having fun too. And so I think that was probably a big kind of wake up call of like, Hey, this is just kind of how this goes, right? There's kind of this cycle and it's not, it's not like flat or up into the right all the time. It's, it's a cycle that we're on. I think you can enjoy each of those different kind of parts. One, one of the things actually, when I'm in that guy named Cameron Harold calls it the, uh, kind of the dark night of the soul, right? The bottom of the uh, the roller coaster when you're feeling like really down and, and out about your business, maybe it's not going your way. One of the things I've started to learn to, to realize that time is like, this is going to pass. And I'm really looking forward to when like that breakthrough happens, or that moment where things click again, because I know it'll be really fun and exciting and there'll be a really big rush around that energy. And for right now, I just need to give myself a lot of grace and take care of myself and make sure that I'm taking some breaks. And Cameron says that he, they used to go at 100 got junk, they would go organize the file cabinets, right? So doing, you know, stuff like that, I think has been a good reminder. Oh, so much great stuff in that. I mean, I, I've had, I had a similar experience and I similarly had to have it reflected to me from my partner, except his um, reflection was slightly different. He didn't say, this is how it is. He said, this is how you are. <laughs> he said, you, you are never going to just say, oh, now the business is, is great. You're always going to be looking for the next thing because, and so I've kind of translated that in my own head and I've probably written about this quite a bit. Just that's how entrepreneurs are. If you're an entrepreneur, you're somebody who is looking at your business going, yeah, but it could be something better or, Ooh, I see this opportunity here. Ooh, I see this flaw here. Like I just want to fix it because that's just, I think that's just in the nature of being an entrepreneur, being a business owner. Somebody told me that business equals problems. And <laughs> I was like, huh, you know, I've had clients come to me and think like, Oh, if I make more money, if I, you know, sell more stuff, if I bring on more clients, like all of my problems will go away. And that's not really the case. A guy named Ari uh, Weinswag, he says that as you get successful with business, you just get more fun problems to work on. And I think that's there's a lot of truth to that, that if you grow a successful business, whether it's a million dollar business or a $10 million business, right? I mean, the assumption there is that instead of working on problems of like, I can't feed my family, which kind of sucks as a problem to solve, you're solving more interesting and nuanced kind of problems in your business. The problems don't go away. So if you're adverse to problem solving, if problems stress you out, if you're hoping that one day you're going to solve all the problems in your business and you're just going to kind of coast, I don't think that entrepreneurship is probably the right career choice for you. You know, maybe being a, a passive real estate investor or something would be a better fit versus being an actual business owner, a CEO, somebody that has to be willing and have a very large appetite for 
you know, solving problems. Well, that's the fun of it. We are problem solvers at our at our heart, right? Being a business owner is being a problem solver. And I, I kind of noticed it actually in comparison to friends of mine who are not business owners. And I see how they don't necessarily even attack problems in their life. I, I've noticed myself to be so accustomed to this problem solving mentality that when I watch someone not solve a problem, I'm I'm so confused. It's like, oh no, that's just well, let's just look at all the options how to solve that problem, you know, whatever it is. Your your mother can't come over because of COVID and you need to do this thing. I'm like, there's a bazillion solutions to that. Like, why are we not workshopping this? But it's something that you, to your point, you have to get used to because you're going to constantly be doing it and it can be fun. I mean, it, I think it's fun. It would be boring without the problems to solve. And we are manufacturing them and they are better. They get better. They get more fun. They get yeah. less. I don't know if they get less stressful. I think that's an internal thing, how stressed or not stressed you are. But they they get less, what's catastrophic or <laughs> what's the word? If you can't feed your family, it's different than, you know, you can't take that huge vacation this year. What's on the line is different. And, and I think people too, like, I, and there, they've been, there's been studies about this, about like, people operate usually within a general band of existence, whether that's happiness or stress. Now, obviously there are traumatic events that can send you outside of kind of your normal operating zone. But I think that, you know, if you're thinking that, Hey, I'm going to grow this business and I'm going to get, you know, if I'm financially successful, I'm just going to be ridiculously, you know, happy or something like that. And I think that generally speaking, you know, you're probably going to be, you know, within a certain band of happiness and kind of positivity, but you might just have more, you know, freedom. And I think that freedom could lead to more fulfillment or more joy. If you're, if you're stressed at your job, you know, you're probably going to be a stressed entrepreneur, right? I mean, it's kind of like maybe a little bit more of who you are versus I started a business and all my problems went away, right? That, that's probably that's not going to happen. That's um, not, that's not, no, don't start. <laughs> if you want all your problems to go away, don't start a business. <laughs> Yeah, you'll be a stressed millionaire. You, there are lots of stressed right. millionaires. I think that's so true. And I, I'm glad we're talking about this because I think there are a lot of people out there, especially in the earlier stages of their businesses who, and I'm projecting because this is how I was at my early stages of my business, I truly believed that there was something that I could get to and then all of those problems would go away. I had a very extreme, in a very short amount of time, I went from like debt to a lot of money. And so it was such a short amount of time that I got to see very clearly the difference in how I felt. And I actually f didn't feel different at all. That was when the light bulbs went off. And I went, oh, the money is not why I'm stressed. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Great. Well, now that I know that, I don't, I don't have to chase it so much for that reason. That's not going to solve it. I can just be entre entrepreneurs. Like you have to just be happy no matter what's going on and, and work on your business at the same time. The business is not going to bring you happiness. There's like, uh, I, this was actually, I think two years ago at our, our conference, I talked about pursuing happiness and external goals by and large, aren't really great drivers of happiness internally, right? And I remember this actually, I had this goal for a long time of becoming a seven figure business. And one of the reasons that I wanted to get a seven figure business is this is gonna sound so funny in hindsight, but I wanted to join a group of entrepreneurs called EO. And I was in their accelerator program. Yes, and you couldn't me too. get into like I was in the accelerator you program. You couldn't get into like the big kid you room unless you were. The, yep. Yep. And it you know, drove <laughs> me, me nuts. And I remember hitting that point where we are lagging twelve months, had hit a million dollars a year, and I like barely even celebrated. 
And I remember Emily said to me, she's like, isn't this like a really big goal? Like, shouldn't we like go out to dinner or like do something? And I was already like on to the next thing. I was already on to the next thing. And it was such a fleeting moment that I didn't even like recognize it or celebrate it, which I think is really that that's pretty common with external goals. Like you immediately, like once you hit that external goal, like your next step, like I was like, okay, now we need to do $2 million. Like I literally, like there was probably a nanosecond in between hitting a million dollars and setting the goal to $2 million. And I did that. I kept like on this external goal pattern and it really wasn't super fulfilling. So I went on this kind of existential journey, reading a lot of books, watching a lot of movies, documentaries about this whole like happiness thing. And I found a lot of really interesting people on that journey. But the three things that they say that kind of drive most towards happiness and fulfillment is a pursuit of mastery. So getting good at something, autonomy. And this is, I think, why a lot of agency owners in particular struggle when they have clients that are kind of pain in the butt clients where their clients are ruling their life is they start to feel like they don't have that autonomy that maybe they felt like they signed up for when they started their business. And then the third is uh, deep and meaningful relationships. So I kind of said, okay, external goals serve a purpose. They give us some direction. They kind of create a common language for us as a team to say, this is generally the business goals that we want to go for. But then on a personal level, I've really been working on those three things. So like mastery, for instance, like my book came out of that. That was an external goal. Like, hey, I wrote a book, but really the, the, uh, the internal goal was I want to write every day and I just want to become a better writer. And so that was a lot more fulfilling. And I'll be totally straight like that, working on myself as a writer, writing every day, printing out the writing, you know, the 1500 or 2000 words that I wrote, and then reviewing it that afternoon or that next day and going through and editing it and reading it and sharing it with people and getting feedback. Like that process was way more fulfilling than seeing my book on Amazon. Like it was cool. It was like, oh, wow, Amazon, right? Bestseller, right? But it was like, it still was very fleeting. I felt like literally the second that we hit bestseller in one category, I immediately messaged my book marketing company. I was like, hey, what about the next category, right? Like I was already on to the next goal, right? And I think that that's, you know, looking at those three things, if you are missing that in your business, the, the mastery, autonomy, and relationships, those can be really great keys in stressful times to kind of regain some of your fulfillment and joy around your business. Well, let's talk about your book. So we know now what drove you to write it. Can you tell us a little bit about what we will learn in your book? I talked to a lot of people that struggled to, you know, find their niche, to really become an authority or expert in a space, kind of to, to be known for something. And also people that struggled to get clients outside of referrals. And a lot of businesses, service businesses, for all the right reasons, get a lot of referrals and they kind of create their business on the back of referrals because they're head down working in their, working for their clients and they don't have time to market for themselves and all this kind of stuff. Uh, and so I really looked at that problem and said, look, I want to create a roadmap for people to find an audience that they can really serve and become that hero for that audience. They can come in and be that authority because, you know, referrals are great, but when somebody comes to you, and I'm sure Pia, you know this, right? When somebody says, Hey, I've been listening to, I've listened to every episode of your podcast and I've read your book and I've seen you talk on stage, you know, and I've been following you on social media for years and I just love everything that you do. And I've been waiting for the right time to work with you. And I'm, you know, I'm so ready. Now's the time, right? That's a much different sale then, you know, somebody who messages you like, found you on Google, need a proposal, 
please email me quote, not willing to do call, right? Like, right. I mean, you know, pitch me. And, and yeah, yeah, pitch me, right? Like, you know, here's our RFP, right? And I, I hate that whole RFP. I hate that process of working with people that you're, you're constantly trying to sell them on why you're so great. And it's a lot more fun when somebody sells you on why they want to work with you. And so I wanted to create, a, you know, take my experience, take some of my experience helping my clients and, you know, make it easy for people to, to find that. I, I shouldn't say easy. That's the wrong word. To make it simple. And there's a lot of work involved, but I wanted to simplify that process to say, hey, if you just looked at these kind of five things, get these five things right or work on these five areas. And I think you're going to be better off as a business than you would be had you not worked on those five things. And a big piece of this is to own your market. I watch people make so many mistakes when it comes to niching down, picking their niche, arbitrarily picking their niche. Oh, that sounds like a good idea. Can you give some advice on on how someone might pick their their niche, their niche? <laughs> yeah, that's the I mean it's a million dollar question, right? Because when you find a market that you align with and it's something that you want to, you know, jump in the deep end and really become like build your business around that market. I think like, like I've done the last 10 years in the in the agency market. When you find that, it it becomes, you know, a lot of times can become a million dollar business, right? Or or more. One of my clients serves the IT professional market. There's 17,000 of them in the United States. He has 26 of them as clients and he's on track to do a million dollars in in that business, right? And he's been in that niche now since working for me. He's about two and a half years into that niche, right? He's on track to have a seven-figure business uh, this year because of that, right? He's 26 clients, 17,000 possible people in that market, right? 26 of them. And, you know, but and he's like 100% dedicated to them, right? He's, you know, he's blogging on their, you know, on their blogs. He's getting on podcasts. He's building relationships with influencers. Like when you ask him, you know, who he serves, he's unapologetic. Like he helps MSP businesses and IT professionals get more leads. And, you know, he's building processes around that and frameworks and intellectual property. And he's even thinking about launching some courses uh, for some of the markets he can't serve. And yeah, he owns that market. Not that he possesses it, right? But he's like all in. He's in the deep end. He's like, you know, working day and night trying to figure out how to get that group of people very specific results. And it seems like because of that mastery component, he's a lot happier doing that because he's really going deep into that market. Like he really understands who his customers are, what their worldview is, what their workflows. Like he understands the language, the nuance, and it's taken him some time to do that. But I think it's a much more rewarding pursuit than, you know, being like, hey, we can help everybody, you know, do anything, right? So finding that audience for you, I think there's a level of it that is personal of what what are your interests? Who can you get results for? You know, do they have money is is an important question, right? I mean, if if there are some niches that are really interesting spaces, but they might not have money or be willing to spend money, which is hard too. So you have to kind of spend some time on it. I, I tell people, look, I'm on, I'm on, and I say this in the book, I'm on niche number 13. So I think it's good to get rid of the idea that you're going to get it right the first time. If you get it right the third time, you're, you're 10 up from me and you know, you can uh, maybe teach me how to do it better. Because obviously I'm thinking about this all the time myself and I actually like niche down and then expanded again and I'm about to niche down again. But when I look at some of these 
guru type of brands, I find that they start very specific. But then as they build an audience, they often go wide and just go for like lifestyle personality brand. I mean, I was actually kind of following that model until I decided this is kind of exhausting. <laughs> um, and I can give you, I mean, you know, Marie Forleo would be one of them. I don't know if you know the woman who who wrote that book about vlogging, vlog, vlog like a boss. Yeah, I don't know if you heard about her. But anyway, my point is like she started in vlogging. Now she's just live your happy life. Marie Forleo started with, I think, creative female entrepreneurs. And now she's like, Marie TV, I just talk about everything. I'm just curious as a branding person, what do you think about, is that a viable option? Is that a stage of business? Is that, are these people headed for disaster? Is it only work when you're the best in your field and everybody else should not do that? I don't know. I'm curious. (laughs) Yeah, and what happens too is, and this is, I love that you bring up people like Marie and, and others, because what happens too is s- smaller, earlier stage businesses look at that and right. they go, oh, Marie that. <laughs> focuses on everybody, so I can focus on everybody too, right? And, and they forget like the backstory, right? And there's a lot of really good examples of starting narrow. And then if you can find those truths within a small market, if you can find that essential truth that's so true for like a smaller market, it's also true for like maybe that next tier up. And then if you can continue to refine that and figure out a way to continue to make that true for the next tier up, I think you can, you know, there's there's a lot more case studies where people started narrow and successfully grew into wider audiences than the other way around. You know, Facebook is a perfect example of that, right? They started at, you know, Harvard, as kind of this campus, not even a social network, really. It was just like, hey, you can like browse people's profiles or whatever and kind of find people that you met on campus. And then, you know, then it kind of got more developed and went to Ivy League and then it went to universities and then it went to, you know, all colleges and then it went to, you know, anybody that was in school. And then, you know, eventually, you know, five years later, like, you know, people's grandmas and stuff are getting on, right? And so you see examples where something starts really narrow and kind of like they figure it out at a really small level where it's manageable. And then they find their kind of, they find how to make it work for bigger and bigger audiences. In the book, I talk about the Beatles and how, you know, when they first started out and, you know, nobody knew them, you know, they were playing at every bar, venue, club, tiny little room, basement venues in, in Liverpool and Manchester. And, you know, they were gigging seven nights a week, sometimes three shows in a single night. And they did that for two years before coming to the U.S. And they built up that they refined their sound. You know, they got better at the same songs, playing them over and over and over again. They got better at reading an audience and better at figuring out what sound do people want. Right. And through that repetition and through that practice and also in building their audience and validating their sound, eventually, you know, they came to the U.S. and it was overnight success, right? They could fill right. Madison Square Garden. If you were to go back to day one and said, hey, can you fill Madison Square Garden? Can you get 50,000 people to watch you play? You know, I mean, no, because their sound wasn't validated. It probably wasn't even that good, right? And so I think you look at somebody like Marie, she refined her message and she probably now is is got such a dialed 
kind of ethos, if you will, that it works for a lot of people at a lot of different levels. Like she's kind of worked that out. Now, I'm sure there's a, a moment where people can mess up with that. Like they can dilute to the point of, of not working. But then you've got people like, you know, Oprah, she's massive empire, right? Lots of different applications of her kind of core ethos. But I think that came from thousands of repetitions and, you know, refinements over those, those many, many years that she did that. Right. So I think the case for starting really narrow and then going wide, and then if it breaks for narrow either for you up. or for your audience, yep. right, then maybe you got to narrow back down and then kind of figure out how to go from there. Well, as you're saying it, I'm, I'm thinking Oprah, she's a good example. Yes. She refined her ethos, but that ethos is wrapped up in who she personally is and how she presents herself. And as long as she always shows up as the Oprah that we expect, she can basically do whatever she wants. She is the brand and that'll and she's known by enough people and it's recognizable enough that she can go into I wouldn't say she can do whatever she wants because if she showed up on I don't know what would be very un Oprah. <laughs> like if she showed up on something, well, she shows up on everything. You know, if she showed, showed I mean, up on we, a sex take... shop, it would be very weird. <laughs> Oprah yeah, or like Oprah steaks, right? I mean, obviously, uh, yeah. you know. <laughs> well, not even though, because she bought in some Weight Watchers. <laughs> yeah, so that maybe would be, I don't know, maybe that you would be on brand, maybe off brand. Yeah, right. You could make but... it work, right? The new keto line. <laughs> right. Yeah, right. But my, my point is, I think the same thing for Marie Forleo, because if you look at her messaging, I mean, she does so much, like everything she does is so beautiful and impeccably done. But she kind of owns the more generic, like love your life. Like that's her brand, you know, like live your life, design your life. It's great. And she kind of owns that, even though so many people are trying to brand that way. And that's a perfect example of how she can own that because Marie Forleo is the brand. It's Marie and how mm. Marie shows up and says it, that's the brand. So she can say, design your life. Let's talk about drinking water every morning. And it's great when there's a hundred people on Instagram also saying that we don't care because we don't have any sort of relationship with that brand. So to your point, you can't build that brand unless you start niche. I think she it. comes in, into the, the, the space obviously with some authority and some, some backstory, Absolutely. right? I mean, you know, she can say, you know, love your life. And you know, this is, this is how I've applied that brand idea to scale this, you know, empire, whereas nothing against somebody at the other end of the spectrum. But if you're a, you know, a fledgling, you know, life coach who has yeah. no clients and maybe is coming out of a soul sucking career job and you want to help more people and you're saying it and people aren't listening, it's not because it's not necessarily true. It's just maybe because, you know, you haven't built up that market authority. You haven't given people a reason uh, to listen to you. And, you know, no matter how many times you say the same thing over and over again, if people don't have a reason to listen to you, then they're not going to, and they're not going to engage. And you're going to think, oh, it's the messaging, right? Like, why does it work for Marie? And why yes. does it not work for me? And not to say that you have to go to the school of hard knocks, but you have to, I think, build up some authority, whether that means, you know, you've got some clients, you know, that you've helped achieve that love your life statement. And, you know, they've truly transformed then, if you can share that message with people like, hey, this is how I've helped these people do this. And even though Marie's maybe not doing that as outwardly now, it's like assumed because of the many people that have graduated her program. And honestly, she probably has more people 
out there talking about her program and what they've achieved on their own now. So she probably doesn't have to do it nearly as much. But there was probably many years, right? I saw uh, Marie speak many years ago at the Digital Underground conference and she was in the trenches talking about how to, you know, re- reduce churn and, you know, reduce the refund rate on your programs. It was very like tactical stuff in rooms full of people that were, wow. you know, working on that stuff. And I, I don't yeah. think she's doing that now, but like, you yeah. know, she was working on growing her business to seven figures and figuring it out. So I know that yeah. she's, she's definitely put in her time on that. She was playing the the bars seven nights a week. She was the Beatles. Like you have to be the Beatles first. You have to be the Beatles playing three shows a night, seven nights a week in order to get to the place where you can have the overnight success. Did you ever read Hitmakers? I read it a long time ago, but it they just told a lot of great stories about overnight successes and then told like all the buildup to it. Like I think um, the one that one of them that stood out to me was that that gray book, that gray sex book. I'm, I'm a terrible. What's the, um, the sex do- 50, shades, 50 of gray. shades of gray? Yes. Okay. 50 shades of gray. That was like an overnight success, right? Um, it, that blew up this, that woman who wrote that book had been writing fan fiction and had like hundreds of thousands of followers that were reading her fan fiction before she went to a publisher with that book. That's the part of the story that nobody knows because if you weren't one of those 100,000 people, you had no idea who she was. But she had such a huge base that allowed her to blow up in that Mm. manner and have that overnight success. And he just has story after story about that. Really, I think it's, it's valuable for any entrepreneur to read these stories and listen to the backstories of all of these people because to your point, you can't look at Marie Forleo and say, but she's doing it that way. So I want a brand like that. Let me tell you about this funny uh, conversation I had with someone recently. This woman was, she was telling me about a new niche that she wanted to go into. So I said, so what's your biggest challenge? She said, well, I, I don't know how to get those people. I don't know how to, I need to build authority. I want them to see me as an authority and hire me as an expert. I said, well, how many people in that niche have you worked with? She was like, well, none. I was like, well, then you're not an authority. (laughs) You're not, the the game is not to be seen as an authority in something you have literally never done before. And as soon as I said that, she, she kind of chuckled because she realized it was almost like she had succumbed to the marketing language. She had Mm. tricked herself because of course, as soon as she laughed, she was like, oh, right. Oh, I said, just go get those clients first. (laughs) Go work with some of them. (laughs) Step one is you have to actually know what you're doing. And then you get to market yourself as an expert and an authority. But if you've never worked in this niche before, I don't think your first step is to be seen. And I think that's a lot of people's problems. They think the problem is that they're not being seen as an authority. But the problem is that they haven't done the mastery part yet. Or they're, they're not even working on the mastery part in order to be seen as an authority. And I think that's what is so fun about business is that the mastery part, if you want to do really well in business, the mastery part is critical. And where did you hear that those were the three pillars of happiness? I'm pretty sure it was kind of this, it was right around my, the time my uh, my second son was born and I was staying up, you know, until... Yeah basically doing, doing night duty, you know, watching random content. And I'm pretty sure those three came from, I think the movie is called happiness. Maybe the, uh, not the pursuit of happiness with like Will Smith, but just happiness, I think is, is the, the documentary. And they kind of talk about difference between external and internal goals. You know, one thing you just made me kind of think of is, is also making sure that you're not working on stuff 
that people at, at that are maybe further along than you. Like there's there's something to be said about working on things that people a little bit further than you are saying has have worked well for them. But this happens to us uh, a lot. Like we'll have like as somebody who runs a, a multi-person team, right, seven-figure plus business, I spend a lot of my time working on team scale you know, how to make our marketing more scalable, how to make our sales more scalable, how to put people into the right seats, how to build SOPs, things like that, right? And people will come into our ecosystem and they'll, you know, be at maybe the six figure level or trying to break through the six figures. And they'll, and I'll be like, okay, cool. Like, let's create this marketing plans that really help you go out there and get some clients. And they'll say, oh, well, I just, before I get clients, I need to build some SOPs because everybody tells me I need to get SOPs and I need to hire somebody to do Tell all this work SOPs for me are. because uh, as a standard operating procedure. So just like a document that says, this is how you do this thing. And the problem is, is, you know, people are out there saying, hey, go work on this stuff, but they're also not giving you context of, if you're not yet doing six figures a year, like you probably shouldn't be building a lot of SOPs, right? You should be really focused on going out and hunting for clients. And you might not, you know, and, and people say, you know, oh, hire people to do things that you don't like doing. Well, you're doing $80,000 a year and you're, you, you go out there and hire somebody for $50,000 a year, then all of a sudden the owner's making 30 and then they go, they, they start doing something else in their business and they go, oh, I don't like doing this. I'm going to hire somebody else to do this, right? And then you find yourself, and I, and I help a lot of businesses with this where I go in and they're doing half a million dollars a year and the owner is making less than a, you know, less than a teacher's salary. They're making 30K a year because they've taken this advice of hiring for all the things you don't like doing. But that's really something that you do when you're doing like more, right? When you're, when you have the means to really start to bring on a team, uh, a leadership team, right? And bring on, uh, you know, great A players is not necessarily something that you have the ability to do at that 100K level. And so I think that you want to go out there and learn from people like Marie, but always make sure to say, hey, what did you do to get from like 100K to 250? Like, what was that thing that you did? And make sure that you're not taking advice from them about what they're doing to get from like, a million dollars a year to $2 million, because that could be, that could be great. It could be really gold nuggety. Wow, this is amazing. But it actually might be the, you know, might be advice that's given to you at the wrong time and could have really negative detrimental effects to, to your business. That is gold, Brent. I'm so glad you said that. Let's just wrap that, that with a bow. <laughs> Take advice based on where you are. And understand that all advice does not apply to you at every stage of business. I think that is that is a, a huge mistake that people are missing constantly because it's very hard to know that until you've been in business for a while. <laughs> it's very hard to know that until you've had that experience. That is that is gold. Well, Brent, thank you so much for coming and hanging out with us. It's been a pleasure. Everybody should go grab Brent's book. I'm going to tell you guys where to get it in a minute, but. Thanks so much, Brent. It's been great hanging out with you. Yeah, Pia, my pleasure. You've got an awesome show and I love the format and I love what you're doing. So keep doing it. Thanks, Brent. To grab some of Brent's wisdom about focusing in order to build a successful agency, pick up a copy of his new book, Get Rich in the Deep End. Commit to your niche, own your market and audaciously scale your agency on Amazon. But wait, there's more. Brent has offered you guys a gift that he shared during his book launch, and he's offering it to you guys because you are my audience. He said if you just message Brent on Facebook and tell him, I want the field guide, he will 
send you a copy of the Get Rich in the Deep End field guide. So how cool is that? You can go find him on Facebook. I will link to both the book and Brent on Facebook in the show notes at piasilva.com backslash podcast. Also, if you know any other entrepreneurs who are struggling to put their business in its place and could benefit from hanging out with us over here, then please share this podcast with them. It's about working smarter, not harder. And how you show up in your business is really what makes the difference. And to make sure that you don't miss an episode of Show Your Business Who's Boss, hit the subscribe button on your favorite podcast player. I just love how Brent pointed out that solutions to business problems should be evaluated by where you are in business. In other words, a strategy to grow a business from, let's say, 500,000 to a million isn't necessarily going to work if you're struggling to pass the $100,000 mark. So ask yourself today, where are you getting the business advice and strategies that you follow? Did they use those strategies effectively when they were where you are in business right now? The doors to my program, Make Six Figures Your Biatch in 2021, are open right now. And they are specifically for service businesses who are already in business, good at what they do, but are struggling to pass that six-figure mark. That beautiful, golden six-figure mark that everybody can't wait to get to when they first start their business. In my experience, getting to the six-figure mark is simple, but it's not necessarily easy. In fact, the part that is challenging about it is that it is so simple. It requires you to hone in and focus on just a few things that will get you towards your goal. And you really have to just ignore the rest. And unfortunately, most entrepreneurs who struggle to hit six figures, it's usually because they're just so busy wasting time doing all kinds of things that aren't going to get them there, like posting on social media. If you haven't hit six figures yet, you need to focus on just a few core things that are going to get you there in 2021 and ignore the rest. And that is what I am personally going to help you with in my program, Make Six Figures Your Biatch in 2021. If you want more info, email me at pia at piasilva.com or fill out an application. The link is in the show notes at piasilva.com backslash podcast. And guess what? Working with me is definitely the next step in showing your business who's boss. Who's boss?